You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey to everybody and all our members who are on the uh, the members only ask me anything uh, session here now. Uh, I believe we are streaming live on Facebook, uh, so we'll just let that run. Uh, my name's Chuck Marone. I've got Kia, who um, when I was switching back over there, it looked like you were <laughs> taking a swig of something. Uh, water is what we'll we just call assume it that it's water. <laughs> so it is. <laughs> it's Friday of the member drive, so it's been a busy <laughs> for everyone. I won't blame you if you are drinking more. I, me, <laughs> I have the uh, the Mountain Dew. We I went through all the kickstart here in the office, and so now I'm just back to like the regular stuff. I was gonna have a kickstart wow. this morning. That's and, how you know uh, it's serious is when Chuck runs out of Kickstarter. You know, so. <laughs> you know things are going down. Yeah. Um, we should let people know. I, uh, this morning, um, and we've done this a couple times on member drives, we, uh, we send out to a select group of people uh, my private cell phone number and tell people to call me. And so I've been in all morning taking calls from people and it's been really, really fun. It's really interesting. It's great to talk to people. Uh, a lot of people will call and be like, I never thought you would answer. And I'm like, I'm, t- I'm totally answering. Uh, let's <laughs> chat. And it's, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, you, you, I talked to, to a woman from uh, Worcester, Massachusetts today and uh, kind of got a little sense of what they're doing. I just got off the phone with someone from Bozeman. Uh, Montana. I chatted with someone from the Gulf Coast in Mississippi. And it's fascinating because what I see is our message, our conversation is reaching so many people in ways that I never envisioned 10 years ago when I started writing this blog that, uh, you know, we, we, would, we would be having this much impact on this many people in this many conversations. So I just wanted to tell you, it's really exciting. And I'm going to put my phone on mute so as people continue to call, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, get in the way of our conversation here. So yeah. go ahead. I've Kia. done the same because we have, to everyone who didn't get your personal cell phone number, I sent a very, uh, I hope, heartfelt plea from you. <laughs> it seemed heartfelt from what I read, um, to call the rest of our staff and talk to us. And I would love to chat with you if you know anyone who should be a part of our movement. Have them give them our office number and have them patch them through to me. But we have some important business to attend to right now, Chuck. This is our All right. member drive edition of Ask Strong Towns. And I want to say first, welcome to anyone who just joined this week. I know that there are probably some people registered who um, got their invite this morning and they joined, you know, late last night. And I'm really excited that you've joined us. The way this works, just to kind of get your sea legs under you, is um, you have a little button. If you're watching the webcast live, it says Q&A at the bottom of the screen. That is where you put your questions. We have some pre-submitted questions from other members kind of lined up and ready to go, but we do want to hear from people live on the webcast. And then after the webcast, we're going to re-release this as a podcast so that 
everyone in the Strong Tones community can benefit from whatever wisdom we extol. And more importantly, from your questions, which I think are informative and often tell people what they should be asking of their own community. So I'm ready to dive right into it if you are, Chuck. I am. You know, I, I realized that like today I got up, I got home last night from, uh, from Texas at uh, a little after one in the morning. And uh, so it was a, it was a, it was a long two days of travel and then a quick night last night. So I got up and I'm like, I'm just wearing a hoodie and my baseball <laughs> cap to work today. Um, I just, it just occurred to me. I, uh, hang on a sec. Okay. I am wearing the, uh, the official t-shirt of Strong Towns. Oh, we can't quite see? see it. There it is. <laughs> Good stuff. There we go. Yeah. I, I was like, I got up this morning and I'm like, what, what am I going to wear? And I'm like, hell yeah, I'm putting on the t-shirt. So Very cool. Well, our members probably know this who are watching live, but for the podcast audience later, I will say that you can buy a Strong Towns membership that includes a t-shirt at strongtowns.org slash shop. So just wanted to give that a little plug. Sweet. But let's get to the exciting stuff. We've got some questions. And the first one that I want to get to is from Carrie Westerbeck, longtime member. Mm-hmm. Um, And it's a question about impact fees, which I realize we haven't talked about, at least in a while. Um, Carrie says, my city of Bothell, the suburb of Seattle, hope I'm pronouncing that right, and the cities all around us charge impact fees on new construction that cover the costs of traffic, schools, parks, and fire. Chuck, you might disagree that it actually covers those costs, but let's figure it out. The city of Seattle does not impose impact fees, relying on other taxes to cover all these needs for the city. What's the Strong Town's approach to impact fees? Are they a good way to pay for civilization or are they a bad idea? Let's start off with what are impact fees for people who might not be familiar with that term, and then let's get the Strong Town's take on it. Well, let's give uh, the the technical term, which is an exaction fee. Mm. Um, And I know that uh, here in Minnesota, we're allowed to charge one exaction fee, which is a park dedication fee. Uh, a lot of states prohibit exaction fees, uh, but some states allow them. Uh, Washington is one. Florida is one I'm very familiar with, has impact fees. And the idea carries like, I'm excited you start with my question. Hey, dude, of course we did. It was a great question. Um, impact fees, the, the theory behind the impact fee is that, okay, uh, we're going to add a new home uh, or 10 new homes or 100 new homes. And that is going to require us to put in, let's say, a new water tower somewhere. Well, we're not going to make that one home pay for the entire water tower if it you know, puts us over the edge of where we need a new one. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to charge you an impact fee. Here's the impact that you're having. Uh, that's Your growth is going to require us to add this new thing down the road. So we're going to collect money from you. We're going to sequester it and put it aside and then use that money to someday build this new piece of infrastructure that we need. Water towers, water treatment plants, sewage pumps, uh, arterial roads, interchanges. Um, so in, let's, let's give like the benefit of the doubt to the theory. Um, the theory is that we can actually sit down and project out all of these costs, uh, figure out what your exact take of it is, and charge you for it so that growth is essentially like revenue neutral. Right. Um, let's pretend that, that that is all true and that can all happen and, and we're like technical enough to figure that out and it's wonderful. 
that solves like the first life cycle issue. Um, that solves like how you build this stuff the first time. Uh, generally, how you build it the first time is never the problem. Uh, in Seattle, they don't have a problem building new infrastructure. In most cities, in Minnesota here without exactions, we don't have a problem building new infrastructure. We're very, very good about doing it. We have all kinds of systems to do that. Hello, little kitty. Yeah, um, sorry. For people who hear this on the radio later, um, we have <laughs> some cat co-hosts that are going to make some cameo appearances. Yeah, that's great. My it's cat's the, wandering through the background. <laughs> it's the crazy cat hour. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, so exaction fees are really good at the first life cycle. What they don't get at is how you maintain stuff. And so when you look at exaction fees, there's a couple of things that we see um, that happen as a side effect of them. The first is that we tend to build a lot of crazy infrastructure. There's just a bigger slush fund of money there to build more stuff. And you can see this, I'm intimate like with what they've done in Florida, uh, less so in Washington. Uh, but in Florida, they've just built all kinds of crazy stuff using exaction fees, and it's nutty. Um, the other thing is it does uh, – I think it's a really bad way to fund the first life cycle of growth if you're interested in housing affordability. Um, what you do is you create a huge amount of upfront costs on anything new that you build, and – these fees tend to be assessed even on infill the same way they are on greenfield development. And so you're, even though the impacts are very, very different, it is, becomes like a revenue generation process. And so I think that there's some distorting effects there. I don't know if they take care of that in Washington state, but I know in Florida they do not. Uh, and here in Minnesota, the limited way we do uh, park dedication, they do not. Um, I think the third thing though, and, this comes from like getting into these in Florida in a few places. Uh, I saw in after 2008, Florida governments raiding these exaction funds to pay just staff. Um, like we just pay staff salaries with this, which is illegal. I mean, I, I don't think like you can do that in Florida. Uh, but to quote like one of our former vice presidents, there's no controlling legal authority. Like there's nobody who comes in and says like, you can't do that and holds people accountable for that. And, huh. you know, cramp, you know, clamps down on them. There just yeah. isn't like that. There's nobody like pushing back on it. So when times got really tough, they would just raid these funds and spend the money and then, you know, say, well, this was necessary for whatever reason. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not like, anti-impact fees, uh, but I don't think they really get at like the core issue that we struggle with at Strong Towns. Oh, for sure. And I, I want to add a comment that Carrie, the person who asked this question, actually just put in the chat. Um, he says, exactly. I have permitted a fourplex and the impacts, impact fees heavily impact the pro forma and makes the rents I must charge go higher. It costs right. him money to pay these impact fees. All in a town that is desperate for affordable housing. It penalizes those of us who want to build incrementally. The smaller the project, the more it hurts. And that's a really good point that I think deserves our mention. It's a, it, it is an approach that favors the big greenfield developer because the big field, greenfield developer can go in kind of they've got teams of lawyers to fight these first of all. So they go in and negotiate and you know, impact fees are always negotiated for, for big developers, not for carry <laughs> for the big people. They are, 
they go in and they've got teams of lawyers and they'll argue it and they'll sit down with their engineers and they'll calculate all these things. Um, and, you know, when you're doing a big greenfield development, you can have large impacts or smaller impacts. And so they, they kind of work through that math. Where I think it really bites hard is in the small infill developer. If you're taking a vacant lot or you're taking a single family home and converting it into a fourplex, you're doing, in my world, you're doing the Lord's work, right? <laughs> you're helping make cities better. And the idea that you're having any kind of impact comparative to the, the edge developer who's doing greenfield development at scale is just silly. Uh, yeah. but, but these systems don't recognize that. Well, and it gets back to the point of how do we really calculate the real impacts of a particular development that we're, it's imperfect. And, you know, I feel like this is something that Strong Towns has taught me in particular as someone who came from a more classical, liberal, economic sort of way of thinking before I started working for us, which is that like, well, not classical liberal, I guess, modern liberal way of thinking, which I think has some pejorative connotations for good reason. Sure. Um, there's always this thought that like we can do whatever we want as long as we just play with the tax levers to charge more money. Pay yeah. for it, just charge more money, you know, like money is fake. You know? right. and it is to some extent and to some extent those things are plastic. But when you take into account the fact that we're just really bad at estimating this stuff, mm -hmm. doing it systemically over an entire region, it just falls apart. Part and it's not fair and different people get charged different amounts um, for the same thing and you know people get charged unfairly so just wanted to go yeah. back to that point for a quick second because it's been crucial for me to learn that well I appreciate that at the local level it is a lot I I, I think oftentimes um, we talk about wealth and we track things in terms of money but at, at the end of the day what we're really talking about is the energy of our community um, yeah. and you know, I'll, I'll give, I got this question yesterday from someone at one of my talks. Uh, they were asking about the Lafayette map and I was able to talk a little bit about their sewer system. Uh, this, is, this is a little bit in the weeds. I'll make this simple. There's, there's, a, there's a, a property right next to their sewage treatment plant where the water just flows by, the sewage just flows by gravity to the main pump and gets treated. There's another property way out on the edge where the sewage gets pumped 20 times before it gets to the same spot and is treated. Wow. One has enormous cost. One has very low cost. They both pay the same monthly bill. <laughs> so if you look at that, like that's how the mentality of impact fees are set up. Carrie's fourplex in the middle of town in a core neighborhood is considered to have the same impact as the greenfield development way out on the edge where we can look in any dimension that there is, whether it's the amount of commuting traffic it creates, the length of pipe and the number of pumps that is needed to get the water and the sewer uh, handled. All of these things grow exponentially as you get further out and none of these systems really are dynamic enough to capture that. I would have less problem with impact fees if I saw us being rigorous in that way. In other words, you're, let's just think about like a sewer connection. Your sewer connection on an infill lot uh, in an existing neighborhood should be really, really small. Your sewer connection on a new greenfield site way on the edge should be 10 times, 20 times greater. If we were doing that kind of dynamism in our system, uh, it would be, it, I would have like less qualms about it. But what we tend to do is say a connection is a connection is a connection. And essentially what we're doing is we're, we're taking stealing energy 
from places where we desperately need it and we're shifting it out to places where it's really harming us. Yeah. Well, that's a decent segue into our next question, which is coming from Stephen Jacques. I think he's the MVP of Ask Strong Towns. He always asks great questions live. Thank you, Stephen, for being yep. a devoted member of our movement. Um, he asks, in light of 2018's devastating hurricane and fire season, how would Strong Towns approach the rebuilding process? I'm afraid we're about to spend billions of dollars merely replacing losses with fortified structures rather than rethinking our development pattern to increase resiliency. What you were just saying a moment ago about, you know, a dynamic system that recognizes disruption and changes around it made me think of this question. And it's a tough one. Um, first, it's really hard. Our love to California right now. But second, how do you think in, you know, when an appropriate amount of time has passed and it's ready to talk about rebuilding, how should California approach that project? It's really hard. This is an impossible question because uh, let's let's acknowledge on an emotional level that we're talking about people's homes and, and and the emotional connection people have to their homes and the expectations that they have. Let's also back up a step further and acknowledge that uh, we have had decades of hubris involved in how we've managed forest fires, water appropriation, all these other things that have made uh, developments that never should have happened. And, and, and I, I say that with, you know, deep respect for the people who have lost their homes now. The, these are developments in places where we never should have developed. We never should have managed the force in the way we have to create, like suppress all the volatility and then have these huge explosions that we can't control and do such horrible destruction. Um, and, and now we have these people who have gone through these tragedies. What do we do? The, the sad thing is... Um, I, I think there probably will be a push to like fortify them and make them more fireproof and fire prone. And I saw once here, in fact, I think it's up on my wall. Uh, the, the, our department of natural resources issued this thing about how to make your place good for fire and uh, make your home safe for forest fires. And they basically just like clear out every tree within a quarter mile of your house. And it's like, well, wh- what? That doesn't make any sense at all. So, I feel like we are about to do that. But the sad thing is like environmentally, we've already, we've already destroyed these places. I mean, now it's burned down. You know, when you, uh, the, 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 the consequence of this, when you suppress these forest fires is you get these massive volatility events, these massive convulsions. And, and when you're done now, you've got to pick up the pieces. And the reality is they probably won't have another big fire for a long, long time because you 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 cr- you crash the bank right like you destroyed the place. Um, what should we do rebuilding? And I I've thought a lot about this. We had last year in Santa Rosa some members that contacted us and said we want to have this conversation. And quite frankly, I, I don't know how to have it. Um, if we look after World War II, cities in Germany um, and, and other places that were were devastated. Uh, they had this conversation then. How do we rebuild Dresden? This is completely destroyed. And initially they said, let's put back um, something new, something exciting, something that would kind of capture the innovation of Cabousier and the automobile and 
basically what has become the North American development pattern. And very quickly they realized that they couldn't do that. Um, and so they went back and like meticulously put back what had been there in the most reasonable facsimile of it that they could. So even cities that were, were leveled and destroyed, they put back in, in, in kind of traditional original ways. When we apply that here, what we're saying is actually the opposite now. Like how do we correct these, these imbalances that got us to this horrible spot? And I don't know. I mean, ideally we would, we would do it differently, but if you were going to do it differently, you would not rebuild these places at all. You, you, you would actually have these people kind of voluntarily move to different places, right? You, you, would, you would compensate them for their loss from an insurance standpoint and then say, okay, now you're going to, you know, rebuilding will not be an option here. And I, I just don't see, even in a state like California, where they, you know, kind of talk a progressive talk as far as, you know, the government doing things for the greater good and what have you. I don't see that as a viable public policy today. Mm-hmm. So the only thing that I came up with was that I w- if, if, if I were talking individually to someone, I would just say, don't, don't rebuild. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know, like, I, I would talk to them about what their hopes were for the future, what their dreams were, and say, is there some way you could take the revenue that you're going to get from this tragedy, from an insurance standpoint or uh, whatever, and try to find a place to live and, and a, 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 a kind of way of being that would uh, have some more kind of long-term viability. But I, I don't know if from a public policy standpoint, you're going to be able to fix this problem now. You know, I, it's I, a tough one. It is really tough. It's really tough. It's, right. it's, it's akin to the problem in, in places like Detroit where we see neighborhoods mm-hmm. falling apart. And like if people were just chess pieces that you could move around, right. you would go in and you would say, okay, I'm the dictator of this neighborhood in Detroit. Your eight homes are no longer <laughs> viable. You will be moved over here to these eight homes. And now we will have a 16 home little neighborhood and we're going to start to grow that. Um, if, if, if people were just chess pieces without right. feelings and emotional attachments and, and, and all the other complexities that go with life, you would just do it. Um, but people aren't chess pieces, right? Like the world doesn't work that way. And I guess for me, I would say on a personal level, there's a lesson to be learned here. And the lesson to be learned is that these are not places that we should be living in, in the way that we're living in them. And if you have an opportunity to start over somewhere else, I would strongly recommend that. That's interesting. I, you know, I want to add one piece to this um, because I was reading an article this morning that I found really interesting. It was a personal essay about the role that um, basically the freeway system plays in Californian life in general, but particularly in the wake of these fires. Um, It says at least six people who have died in these fires burned to death in their cars trying to evacuate. And, you know, it was a personal essay, so it wasn't high on research stats or anything like that. But it made me wonder to what extent our, you know, our, is our transportation system, which as we say is built on freeways connected to major arterials connected to, connectors, um, but basically channeling everyone into the same gigantic roads. Um, 
what effect does that have in an evacuation situation? When we get this question about rebuilding fortified structures, I wonder if there might be some sympathy towards rebuilding a more fortified road system that gives you more avenues out. And maybe that could be the catalyst that gets people to rethink a development pattern. Let's start with creating a, you know, a slower, friendlier, more lattice transportation network in our cities and make our choices about housing around that um, and build a little bit more incrementally. I don't know. It was just something that occurred to me as I was reading this. And, you know, it, I appreciate it that the article said these roads suck even when there isn't a fire coming at you. <laughs> um, they make right. us sad and they make our cities impoverished. I, I think though a lot of, and, and I, I don't know like the absolute specifics and certainly there's been a, a, a lot of destruction here. Um, I do know that when you have people concentrated in a place, um, in a sense, if you're talking about fortifying, like mm -hmm. how do we keep the fire away from... I, I don't believe, and I could be wrong, um, but I have not seen cases where like cities have been burned down. I've seen cases where like suburban homes have been burned down and areas of kind of decentralized development with a lot of trees in between them and buffers and what have you have burned down and taken homes out, but not where like a city, uh, you know, block after block after block has been burned down. I, I, I don't, so in a sense, if, if we're looking at like a big public policy approach, and I think that this should have been California's approach a long time ago, regardless, right. um, we should put our transportation dollars into connecting cities, but really accept oppressive levels of, con of traffic congestion in places where we're not connecting cities. Mm. Um, if you want to have a road up into the mountains and the woods, and it's a two lane road and it's going to take you four hours to drive it. I don't really, that's fine. That to me, that's a good public policy outcome. Mm -hmm. I want to connect the cities together and I want to have that be as free flowing and congestion free as possible. I would use, you know, congestion pricing and other things to make that kind of stuff happen. Mm -hmm. um, but what we often wind up doing is putting a lot of money into fighting congestion uh, to support lifestyle living arrangements uh, that we see in the end are fatally destructive in many ways. Um, and not only that, they're bankrupting us. I mean, they're just, it's just a dumb development pattern. But now we see that it also has these other environmental impacts and human impacts that are horrible. Um, this is like a bad public policy on top of a bad public policy leading to more bad policy to really horrible outcomes. And, and I think if you want to get further upstream of policy, just concentrate your transportation dollars on connections, not on feeding corridor development or feeding offshoots of connections. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you, Chuck. Mm -hmm. Let's go to a pre-submitted question from Chris Robbins. And by the way, keep those live questions coming. We could use a few more. Um, Chris says, I think miles of waterline per customer would be a good measure of infrastructure, maintenance needs, and the resiliency of the town. Is this data easily retrieved for different cities and towns? And is there a standard to compare to? I think we talk about this a little bit in the curbside chat, but I don't know that we've ever focused in on it in in our strong town. So let's talk about it. Um, miles of waterline per customer. What do you yeah. think? <laughs> Is that a good place to start? I do. I do. I think it's a nice course metric. 
Um, the first, I guess if the question is, is that a good metric? I would say, mm-hmm. yes, that, that feels like a good metric. Um, if the second question is, is this easily available? The answer is generally no. Um, <laughs> it might be it, for a city, if they're tracking this through their GIS system or what have you, uh, a lot of cities can have this data and easily get it. And I guess if I were working for a city or could influence a city, I would ask them for what this data looks like. Um, and so I, I, th- I think that, you know, that's one of those things that we should be tracking. But it, it gets to that third question, like, is there a standard? And I think the answer for that, um, huh, I think a non-engineer might say, oh, yeah, no, there should be a standard. I, I feel like I'm burdened with this, like, sense of rigor where it's like, no, there really isn't. Um, if you build a water line in, uh, you know, parts of the Northeast where you're digging through granite and, uh, you know, just like nasty construction conditions, um, it's going to be really expensive per foot. And, and your, you know, number of people per foot is going to have to be a lot different. If you're out in the West and you've got like these wide clear areas and sandy glacial outwash and your only issue is you've got to dig it deep enough to keep it out of the frost, then I think, you know, it, it, your, your cost maybe becomes a little bit less for water. Uh, you know, you, you, what, what, what I think is, is a good way to, to think about this is to actually look at the amount of water system you have. And I think we should do this for road lane miles. Uh, I think we should do this for sidewalk. I think we should do this for sewer. I think we should do this for all these things and say, here's the cost of this system in perpetuity annualized. So annually, here's how much money we would need to come up with annually to maintain the system in perpetuity. What is that equal per capita? Mm. And so we get like a per capita dollar figure. And then we say, what is a per capita dollar figure that we could afford? Mm. So in other words, let's say it is a hundred dollars per capita per year is our amount, but we say we can really afford $50 per capita per year. Like that's what we think is affordable for our community. Well, now you've got, you know, a couple choices. You can either make it unaffordable, like double everybody's price, um, or you can increase the number of people you have without increasing the amount of pipe. Or if you're adding new pipe, you're going to have to do it at a rate that's like four times your current development pattern in order to have it catch up and close that gap. So it gives you some policy options. I think if you did that in multiple dimensions, in other words, if you were evaluating new projects or new policies in light of those kind of ratios in all these different areas of infrastructure, um, you could actually come up with kind of a way to discern whether something's moving you in the right direction or the wrong direction from, from a policy standpoint, if you want to try to manage it that way. Yeah. You got to type that all up in a post so that we can pour over it later. It's a, uh, I, I think this gets a little bit into this whole, um, I've made this case before, the Singapore versus Italy conversation. Mm. Um, and trust me, like there's a little bit of Singapore in me because I'm an engineer. There's a sense <laughs> of like, how do we have dials and levers and like technically make this all work? And I, I think if you're rigorous, you could do that. I think the temptation always is to be forward-looking as opposed to right. rear-looking. I prefer rear-looking uh, rigor 
because you look at like what worked and how do we repeat that or how do we put ourselves on trends that get us somewhere. Um, that is if you want your city run by engineers and rigorous people and give them like, here's the math problem you need to solve. I would prefer more of an Italy method, mm. uh, which is more of a, eh, this is what's always worked. Like we can actually look and see like, here's, here's the way people did it for thousands of years. What do you know? Let's just go do that right. same thing. And, yeah. and so what, it, what I've described the Italy method is, is a very kind of small step, incremental, slow, build stability kind of way of doing it yeah. based on historic precedent as opposed to like, we're going to come up with the exact mathematical formula. I think either approach would work. And I, I'm, I'm interested in exploring both approaches. Um, what doesn't work is building the way we're doing it and then projecting out future growth to solve the problems. That, that's just silly. That's a good distinction. Mm -hmm. Let's go to another pre-submitted question that I think applies to a lot of us. It certainly um, applies to me and my place, which is basically what happens when the road that you want to slow down in your city is owned by the state. <laughs> um, so Matthew Mangiarchina, I don't know how to pronounce I that last name. I just actually talked to him on the <laughs> really? phone. Really? Did yep, I mangle his name? <laughs> I probably did. Uh -huh. uh, so I'm glad to hear that he's a member now. That's exciting. Um, he says, I live in the historic district of my town near the old downtown Main Street. At some point in history, they decided to make that street a part of US 1. So it's wider and cars go faster and businesses have been failed consistently ever since. When citizens raise concern, the city blames the state and claim they have to have requirements about things like lane width because the state tells them to. What's the best way to restore that street to be more people-centered? This is tough. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here's like the easy yeah. way to do it. No, um, this, is a, this is a nightmare. And I was actually on public radio a couple of years ago and got a lot of uh, DOTs angry with me because I said, I think, I think the, Department of, the Departments of Transportation in this country have done more to destroy. Uh, and in this case, it was a show about small towns, but I said they've done more to destroy small towns and neighborhoods in this country than any, any other entity anywhere. Um, when you run a highway through the middle of the city uh, and you insist on highway geometry and highway speeds, uh, you're, you are destroying that city. There's no, there's no two ways about it. And I think um, there's a couple of ways to respond. I'll give, you, I'll give you what I would like the response to be. I, and, and this is going to sound naive and, and kind of blissfully, uh, blissfully wishful, right? Because I, I don't see this happening anytime soon. Uh, it would be great if departments of transportation would recognize uh, that they need the wealth of communities too. They need communities and cities to be successful, to be wealthy, to be prosperous. And if they could recognize that and recognize that they need to help build places uh, and have a different approach for that little part of, of town where you're going through. I think in exchange for that realization, and I wrote about this, this actually made it into my first, our first thoughts on building strong towns volume. If, if you uh, look at uh, the loss of travel time or the increase in travel time, that highways and, and other like state roads experience 
due to this like long stretch of development out on the edge, it's astounding. And, and let, let, me, let me put it like this. If you're driving 60 coming into a place on a state road and you get to this two-mile stretch where you got to go 45 because it's got all the storage sheds and the McDonald's and the strip malls and the frontage roads and all the little accesses to the housing subdivision with eight homes on a cul-de-sac. You got like miles of that coming in. You're losing huge amounts of travel time by having to slow down to 40, 45 miles an hour. Now you get to the little part of town where you've got six blocks or eight blocks or two blocks or whatever it is, where you got to go 30, which is way too fast for that part of town. And by the way, because you're still using highway geometry, people don't go 30, they go 35, 40 through there. Now you get out to another two miles, three miles, four miles of like strody junk where you're driving really slow and suppressing it so you can have all this marginal development before you can get back up to 60 miles an hour. If you look at the time it takes you to traverse that, and you compare that to the time it would take you to go 60 the entire way until you get to the, the eight blocks or the six blocks or the two blocks or whatever it is, go 20 for that two blocks, have a transition, right? But then go really, really slow, 15, 20 for those two blocks, and then go back up to speed again is actually be way faster to have a better downtown. What we have done is in pursuit of like cheap growth out on the edge, uh, we've really mined and in a way bastardized our huge transportation investments for these negative returning short-term gains. I would love to see DOTs recognize that trade-off and work to close accesses out on the edge and then really slow traffic down in the core. And I think that would be good for DOTs. I think they could build highways that are cheaper, highways that move people more quickly, and highways that are safer if they did that. So I, I can make a case that it's in their interest to do that. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> and, and I think DOTs struggle with this conversation. Um, and so there's a couple other options open to us. Um, they both involve us being proactive locally. And that means you have to have in alignment your staff, your leadership, and your community. One of the things I've seen work is where communities take over the road. They go to the DOT and they say, we know you're broke. We know you don't have any money. We know that you're bankrupt. We also know that this is the most expensive section of street road that you have. We'll take it over. We'll plow the snow. We'll maintain the cracks. We'll do all this. You can still even call it your road if you want and have your traffic go through here. But we're going to control the geometry. We're going to control the layout and the design. Um, there's, there's a lot of DOTs that are desperate enough uh, financially where they'll make that trade. And, and understand, from a, design, from a DOT standpoint, if they can build four miles of open road, they've got to deal with like eight property owners. They don't really care. Like that's easy to do. They got programs to do that. When they got to build in the middle of the town and they got to worry about drainage and how the drainage is going to affect the stoop in front of your shop. And then we got these like eight sidewalk superintendents out like bitching at everything we do. They hate working in cities. They hate it, hate it, hate it. So mm -hmm. if, is, if you can take that off their, off their list, Oftentimes they're happy to consider that because this is the most expensive, time intensive, uh, largest amount of complaints kind of work that they do. Um, I think the other thing then in, in 
if taking it over is not an option, I think the other thing then is to just get really proactive about asserting your values. Um, in, in my hometown right now, uh, one of the things that I'm kind of pushing on, and I think next year we're going to really push on this, is just the crossings across these uh, nasty strodes through the middle of the city. If you go in January and it's 20 below and you hit the beg button, um, you're going to have to wait there three, four minutes while people, you know, no cars go by, maybe a couple go by, but all these people in their nice, warm, heated cars, and you got to stand out there in the freezing cold and just wait. For people who are new to us, you should know that Chuck lives in central Minnesota. So when central he says Minnesota. below, he is not kidding. <laughs> that is an actual it, number. <laughs> it's very cold at times. So, you know, you, make, you force people to stand there and wait. Why can't those lights cycle more quickly? If you press the buttons, why couldn't they cycle more quickly? Why can't we prioritize the people who are trying to cross? We could easily do that. That doesn't require any change in geometry. doesn't require any change in anything. It just requires us to time the lights different, which is you can do from the desk at the DOT. Like you can reprogram it from there. So I feel like if we start asserting our values incrementally, what you can do is you can start to change subtly over time these patterns. And by doing that, again, you're changing the culture. If we want places to be strong towns, that's really a math problem, but even more so, it's a cultural conversation. We have to change the cultural expectations around biking, around walking, around building cities. And if we can create a culture of people that bike and walk, if we can create a culture of businesses that, that come to expect that and rely on that, all this other stuff will start to shift. Like the, the right. DOT conundrum will become an easier one to deal with. Does that make Definitely. sense? Oh, it totally does. And it makes me want to break out the traffic calming stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> um, Get out so, there with the, uh, the traffic calming. I mean, yeah. I, I think like the coolest cities are the ones who are actually saying to the DOT, like, fine, you've got your state highway coming through town, but this is our city and we're going to yep. do traffic calming for these three blocks. And if it's a sandwich board or something, like we're going to get out there and do it. If that's all you'll let us do, like that's what we're going to do. But this is our city. You don't get to wreck it. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. Let's go to a question from Rick Smith. Um, so Rick is our friend in Indiana. It's really nice to hear from you again, Rick. Um, yep. We are losing valuable historic housing due to shoddy flips by investors. How do we protect our dense, affordable housing from speculation like this? These homes are traps for unwary young buyers who like the initial look of a building, but the shoddy workmanship dooms them to unnecessary expense and stress. I fear many will lose their homes as the cost to fix non-cosmetic errors can be prohibitive. And then he has some other details about about, you know, houses in his community that he's seen get flipped for five times their initial purchase price um, and realtors saying that's usual. I would actually love to start by answering this one, Chuck, if you don't Go mind, for it. mix it up. Um, as people who know Strong Towns know, um, and if you're new, you're about to find out, I am a landlord. I own four um, a four fourplex and a duplex, both of which are definitely the kind of historic, dense multifamily buildings that Rick is talking about. And I kind of want to wind the question back a little bit and talk about first why these buildings are so far into decline. <laughs> um, that's the thing that I think you have to ask yourself before you answer this question. A lot of these buildings are wired for decline, right? Um, like 
I happen to be in some neighborhoods where these buildings are worth saving. Some of these historic homes are still built in phases of the growth Ponzi scheme, and we need to recognize that about them. The other reason that these buildings have major systems failing is that it is really hard to get a construction loan um, on the scale that you need in order to fix a major system on a duplex or a four family in a whole lot of places. That's certainly the case in my town. The number of buildings out there that the finance exists for them to be um, like renewed in the way that I think that we would, would think is like a quality flip and a quality act of historic preservation is vanishingly small. We don't have that financing. Um, and these houses have been allowed to deteriorate um, to the point that they have because they were wired to do so in a lot of cases. Um, so in terms of how you fix that, I think part of the answer has to be in some cases you don't, you, you let it get raised and you, you know, shrink your footprint of your city. Um, but part of it also has to be create the financing mechanism so that uh, we are able to, as small developers, actually address these problems when that is merited, when that like from a microsurgery perspective would benefit a city to have this kind of dense, valuable historic housing brought back to life. Um, the other thing, and you know, this is a little bit off center, but I think that we need to educate a young class of small developers on the importance of doing that. Um, Chuck, that doesn't really address the flipping part of the question. Um, I want to handle that. I figured you would, because we've yeah. talked about this, you and I, before. Um, Chuck, what do you think about all this? I, I, it's, it's really interesting right now. I read some stuff last week about how uh, a lot of the investors that piled into housing in 2010, 2011, um, are now uh, in this like precarious position. Um, it back in at the end of the housing crisis, housing prices dropped enormously. Banks were looking to unload foreclosed homes. Uh, at the same time, interest rates were at zero. Uh, you know, and and, and people who were uh, who manage large pots of money were doing what they call on Wall Street searching for yield. They were hunting for yield, which means they were hunting for anything that would pay a return on investment above zero. Yeah. And what you saw were things like junk bonds uh, come down in price because a lot of people were bidding on them because junk bonds tend to pay higher yields. Uh, you saw all kinds of crazy investments happening uh, because people couldn't just have their money sit in cash. They needed to get some return from it. Think about like pension funds that had huge gaps they needed to make up. And, you know, all these people like near retirement that had seen their savings get walloped in 2008 and 2009 that now have to find a way to make that back. And so one of the ways that that manifested was uh, these companies came together and would go out and buy all these homes with the idea of renting them out and ultimately flipping them when prices went back up. Uh, you'd get a coat of paint you'd get, as Rick described, some shoddy workmanship. Um, the idea was not to make an investment in a community. The idea was to take Wall Street money, move it to someplace, get it down at the local level, buy a bunch of stuff quick and cheap, and then experience the appreciation for that. Um, that's a really, let's ignore the impact on cities, which I think is like the exact wrong way 
to do things. But if you're a local government, you benefited from it in the short term because your tax base was collapsing and here's something that propped it back up. If you're a current property owner and you want your housing values to appreciate and not depreciate, you benefited from this bubble as well because your property values didn't collapse. Here's the problem. Now that interest rates are starting to creep back up, every time interest rates go up a little bit, um, the risk involved in those trades uh, becomes less appealing. Uh, in other words, the gap between what you're making off of that and what you can make in like a risk-free investment, every time that that narrows, there's, there's less incentive to be in that risky trade. And what we see is that housing prices the last six months uh, have started to stagnate, have started to slow down, and many markets have started to drop again. And the, 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 the kind of tinderbox of housing right now is that without this kind of artificial infusion of cash, uh, there's not a lot underneath the housing market right now. And we could be in for, you know, another round of of things going down. I think the mismatch that Rick is talking about is that we have have long treated housing as an investment and a commodity, as opposed to your own personal like place to stay. We have... Uh, mistaken housing uh, for something that pays a return. Housing is really expensive to maintain. (laughs) It depreciates in value. It's not something that's supposed to go up in value. Um, We have engineered a society around a misperception about housing. And I think until that is corrected, until housing becomes more local, becomes more personal, the financing of it goes back to being more local. We start to construct it in more incremental ways. We have more adaptable, flexible building structures uh, in more adaptable, flexible neighborhoods. Uh, you're going to continue to see a lot of what Rick has called shoddy investments being made by outside capital, not really connected to the community, not really looking at this as the type of investment that it is, but looking at it as something that can be a, a cheap way to, a, a way to park money and get some yield. And there's a saying in the, uh, in the, in the finance business, uh, people who go looking for risk uh, often find it. <laughs> um, and I think that's what we're starting to see now in the housing market is that people who went looking along the risk curve for higher rates of return are ultimately going to discover that the reason you could get a higher rate of return on that is because it was a, is a bad investment. Right, exactly. And if you like what Chuck just said, you should definitely check out ownfilm.com, which is yeah. a documentary that Chuck was a part of that I have seen twice and I love it. It's directed by Giorgio Angelini and it's awesome. So just It is. I'm excited for it to get out. It was shown uh, at a film festival in New York on Monday mm-hmm. this past week. And uh, I think we're very close to having it be kind of released on a broader scale. So so people around the country will get to see it in 2019. It's going to be cool. I'm I'm trying to get a showing here in, uh, in my hometown. Yeah. Um, So we'll see. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And it talks about the issues you just brought up really beautifully. Um, So let's go to a question from Alex Pline, I'm changing my mind mid midstream. Um, Alex Pline is a longtime member, awesome okay. guy from. Pause, pause here for yeah, a second. Yeah, let's pause. Um, so, <laughs> are I, you going to check the letter he's on? I just got to the office today. Uh-huh. 
Look at this. Oh. <laughs> this is a letter from Alex, a handwritten, beautiful and letter cursive. from my Love friend that. Alex. And, <laughs> and I got to say, this like touches my heart. So yeah, it's a really good one. Thank if you, you ever want to get in with good with Chuck, write him a letter. <laughs> well, like my like <laughs> old school too. It's not like an email. Yeah. Or a text. It's actually like sit down and in, in handwriting, like actually yeah. write a real letter. It just, it's beautiful. So it's going to go up on my poster wall. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, as a thank you to Alex, we're going to answer his question right now. So Alex says, um, given the state of the retail industry, the go-to topology of residential over commercial topology ends up not being financially viable, even in traditionally designed areas. This is certainly the case in Annapolis, Maryland, where Alex lives and where I go every year because my soon-to-be in-laws live there and where I went to college there too. Um, But any case, in Annapolis, only the only retail that's doing well is restaurants, but that only scales so far. What suggestions do you have to deal with this? What do you do in in a historic area that is mixed use, but the retail stores keep failing? I mm-hmm. think is the thrust of that question. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really, it's really, uh, it's it's a really interesting thing because this is. I, I feel like this is the like core problem of the planning profession. Mm. Um, we go to uh, some like exciting place. Like we go to West Palm beach and we walk around and we see uh, retail on the bottom and residential on the top. And we're like, Oh, this is genius. And so we go back and we're like, let's do like 500 blocks of this stuff. And it's just like, no, can we do something in moderation at some point? You know, like this is, this is why we talk about doing things incrementally. Yes having retail on the street level and residential above is like a great concept and we can go around the country and we can point to places where this works really, really well. Um, But do you get ahead of yourself with retail? Do you have the right retail? Uh, Do you have enough office space mixed in? Do you have enough residential space mixed in? Who's to say that this should always be retail all the time? Can't, can you create some flexibility in the pattern? Um, I, I, there's a, there's a city that we're going to go to here in two weeks and have lunch, um, celebration, Florida outside of, Mm -hmm. um, Disney world. Uh, and and it's funny because when, when Disney went in and built that city, they had like the cool planning concept at the time it was a new urbanist, uh, type of vision. They went and they built the main street and they said, here's the main street and here's like the business area. And they built that. And then they started to build the residential. And what they found really quickly is that all of it collapsed. Like none of it worked. And none of it worked because they didn't have enough residential. Well, then they started to get into this like chicken or the egg argument. Well, do we have to have residential first or commercial first? Well, we can't really sell the residential till we have the commercial. Well, we can't really support the commercial till we have the residential. What's the answer? you can't build like master plan places all at once to a finished state. You have to build them incrementally over time and you have to build the building. So they're flexible so that if you have too much retail, they can flex and become something else. If you have too much residential, it can flex and become something else. Um, One of the problems that we suffer from right now, and you see this in Annapolis uh, where Alex is from, you see this in Washington DC and some of the DC suburbs is that there's a model right now that we can go to wall street and sell. The model is this mixed use, 
you know, it did better in the, in 2008 and 2009 than the standard separation of uses. So here's the model. It's a, it's a standard product. We can repeat it over and over and over again. It's got residential. Sometimes it's got office. I'm sorry. It's got retail. Sometimes it's got office and then it's got residential above. It's got parking ramps in it. It's got all this stuff. It's like a complete package. You can just check the box. It's done. Um, and what we find is that that doesn't provide enough adaptability and flexibility to actually respond to market conditions. The other thing you have, and I know we talked about this before uh, in a prior ask me anything is a lot of times when we see in those kind of programmed buildings, the vacant retail space, it's not really because there's lack of people who want to do retail or because there's lack of demand for retail. It's often because the price point that they have to have for the financing is higher than what the market can bear. And there's, there's uh, no, I was gonna say there's not, I was gonna say no incentive, but that's not quite right. There's a disincentive to lower the price on those retail spaces. Because what happens when you lower the price on the retail spaces, the value of the building as it's appraised by an appraiser will go down. And when your three-year or five-year uh, or seven-year commercial financing product comes up for uh, a, a, a reset and you have to refinance it, if it appraises at a lower price, you have to come up with large amounts of cash to make up the difference. So for the owner of the building or the investors of the building, it's better to lose a little bit amount every month right. than to fill that and, and get some money, but then have to come up with a huge amount of cash when the thing resets. Um, you're better off to let it sit vacant, pretend you can get that price and hope that the market ultimately catches up to what you've built. It's crazy. And, and you see vacant spots in hot markets all over the place. Um, what is going, what, what I think will ultimately happen is that a lot of these places will go bankrupt. Uh, the banks will lose money. People will, I actually um, think that the, the bubble right now, if I were to point to like, what is the most fragile part of our economy right now? I would say it's the commercial lending. It's commercial real estate. That, that's, that is like one of the places where like the, the biggest distortion of our market is right now. And you see it in these vacant storefronts. You see it in the number of these kind of programmatic buildings that are being built. And we just, it, 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 it's not going to work. And I think it will be a nasty, painful, difficult reset. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't want to end on a nasty, painful, difficult note. No. So I, let's squeeze in one more question okay. with Andrew Green. Something um, happy about like kittens and Yeah. Um, his question is, are kittens or puppies cuter? No, it's not. <laughs> puppies, definitely. <laughs> Lies. Um, so, in any case, <laughs> um, so this is actually just more of a brainstorming question, which I thought would be fun. Um, what are some first steps for smaller cities to lay the groundwork and begin revitalizing their historic downtowns? And Andrew didn't ask this, but I want to actually say, I want to expand this out to citizens. What can citizens do to revitalize their um, historic downtowns if they're thinking of the next smallest step, which is what we talk about all the time at Strong Towns. I know that um, our colleague, our awesome colleague, Jacob, has um, podcasted about this a little bit. He just yep. did a really good one um, about gamifying a strong a historic downtown by hosting a scavenger hunt or building an app or otherwise like ex like restoring excitement and discoverability to a place that might not have the physical infrastructure and the bones 
bones to, you know, encourage those things naturally yet. What other ideas do we have for um, our friend here then, Andrew? Um, I get this question a lot. Like, what are the next steps? And I'm, I'm always, um, I, I think I answer in a way that's, that is genuine, but maybe sometimes disappointing to people. I think people would like, like, here's like the three things you should do, or here's like yeah. all the crazy. Here, here's, here's what I think. If, if you're saying like, I'm going to start from scratch, like, what do I do? I think the first thing you need is friends. Yep. The, like the first thing you need yeah. is a posse. Like you need a team, right? And you need people who um, you can collaborate with, who you can create like your own local movement with. Yeah. Um, the second thing you need to do is you need to understand the, the, the challenges and the opportunities that you have in your place. And the way you do that is by freeing your mind of all the things that you think you know yep. and going to the place you want to work on and actually spending time there observing things and try to be as observant in a micro sense as you can, particularly observe people. Where are people coming from? Where are they going to? What are they doing when they're there? Walk with them, talk to them, ask them about their experience, ask them about different things. I feel like we can get such a head start if we just humble ourselves to actually walk a mile in people's shoes and say, like, what would actually make this better for you today here? You and me are here together. Like, what do we do? And then I think the third thing is you've got to start using this posse you've created, this crew of, of, of change makers and this knowledge to start just gently pushing in a bunch of different areas. Um, you're going to need some public policy changes. You're going to need some changes on the ground. You're going to need some support from business owners. You're, you're going to need the local newspaper on your side. You're going to need to have a, 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 an ongoing dialogue online to engage the broader community so they don't flip out when you take away their parking spot because they're used to driving in five miles to go there. It, 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 <laughs> it, it, it's a whole, I think by thinking of this as like a long-term incremental project, you start to build momentum and create little wins that will, will steamroll on themselves. They'll, they'll start to accelerate over time. So totally. start, with a, start, with your, start with friends. Yeah. Well, and to put just a, a slightly finer point on that, if, start, if making friends sounds frightening to you, because sometimes it can, sometimes mm -hmm. we don't know our neighbors, um, I would encourage you to throw an event, one event, so that you have a reason that you're knocking on somebody's door. Um, I part took part in an Open Streets event in St. Louis here. Um, open Streets, if you're not familiar, is where they shut down a tiny portion, sometimes a big portion, of a city street for a day. And you show all the things that this street could do if car traffic were not allowed there. It's basically a block party with a fancier word. But um, the Open Street event that I was involved in, what they did that I thought was really smart is for months before the event, they went door to door, they talked to neighbors, they hung out in parks, and they said, what would you want to do? We'll make it happen for a day. We're just going to see how it works. And, um, you know, in the context of a historic downtown, you know, maybe you have some buildings that are sitting empty because the landlord is like hesitant for all the reasons Chuck described in our last question to rent it out until he can get a certain rent for it. Um, that doesn't mean he can't have a pop-up for a day. Right. Maybe there's someone who wants to, you know, 
ride their bike. You can put up a temporary bike line for the cost of some spray chalk. Um, but having an event can sometimes be a really fantastic way to give yourself permission to greet people and say hello and say, I'm doing this for a reason, not just, right. you know, it, something along those lines can really help. And it certainly helped me get to know my neighbors and the event that I was involved in. So that's I'll, my piece of advice. <laughs> I'll give you, um, I'll give you one last thing. Yeah. And then we need to talk about the member drive a little bit. Yes. Um, I, I, I look back at my, I, I look back at my life and the times that I've really failed at this. Mm-hmm. And they're the times when I was what Winston Churchill calls a fanatic, right? Um, you, I, I won't, I, I can't change my mind and I can't change the subject. That's what Winston Churchill said as a fanatic, someone who won't change their mind and can't change the subject. And, and what I was doing often in like engaging people is I felt like I knew the answer. I felt like I could see the problem yep. in a way that they were, and I could, I mean, I, I think that that was definitely real. Like I could def, I was seeing things that other people weren't and they were agitating me. They were weighing on me. They, they bothered me in a way that everyone else seemed comfortable with and used to. And, and I, my response was almost fanatical in the sense that like shake someone like, why can't you see this? Why? Why? Yeah. And it took me a long time and I, you could call this maturity. Uh, you could call this um, just thinking more tactically. I, I don't know. I'm willing to throw myself under the bus here, uh, <laughs> you know, from the past. But the idea that uh, I could not only learn something but I could create a connection with someone that would actually get me somewhere by trying to understand them more deeply as opposed to having them understand me. There's a, there's a, and I I don't want to get too Catholic on everybody here, but there's a, there's a (laughs) prayer. There's a prayer of St. Francis. My church is St. Francis church. And there's a prayer of St. Francis. And one of the lines of there is like, help me uh, to be less understood than to understand. And it's one of those lines that's always like struck me because I'm someone who like desperately wants to be understood because I feel like we should be outraged at what is around us and we're not. Why are we not? Like I want people to understand that, but I've actually found that I make more positive change and effect when I follow that prayer of St. Francis and say, how do I more understand other people than to have them understand me? Uh, when I can understand them and we can have talk on their grounds, not only do they become more open to what I'm saying, but I actually learn something and I actually find ways that I can help them and, and, and move the vision that I have for my community along. And, and I guess that would be like my parting advice. Yeah, that's great. Well, I don't want that to be our only parting advice, because I also want to advise anyone who's watching live on Facebook to join the Strong Towns movement. It is the last day of our fall member drive. And we do two of these a year. They are always a little stressful because we get to say that urgency that you're talking about, Chuck, that we feel all year. We give ourselves permission to kind of yell and scream about it and say, oh my God, join now. We actually want you to join that badly every single day. But this is the time of year when we say, 
we really let you know that we're thinking about it and we don't want to bother you by asking you for things every day of the year, but we need you in this movement. You can join at strongtowns.org slash membership. A contribution of any amount means the world to us. And we really mean that. We barely even look at during the member drives at how many dollars we've raised. We look at how many people. How many people. It's what we track every day. Every single day. Um, We're not really reporting on anything with the dollar sign on it. We're looking for a literal investment into the vision of change that we have for America's cities, towns, and neighborhoods, as well as Canada's cities, towns, and neighborhoods. Shout out to the Canucks. Um, So I hope that you consider joining. Um, Please do it now, today, if you can. And if you want to chat about why you might be on the fence, give us a call. Our number is, I always get this wrong, is it 844-218-1681? Great it. 844-218-1681. Chuck, do you have any parting please? I think that that's beautiful. I mean, we're, 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 we're growing this movement. There's a ton of energy here. Membership not only gives us capacity, but it gives us credibility. It it gives us a reach. It, it, it it connects you with us. Um, You know, we do special things for members. These ask me anything are things we do throughout the year. Uh, not only with us, but with people that we bring in. Uh, we give our members a special opportunity to ask questions. Uh, we, 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 we always put all of our stuff out for everyone because we are trying to change the, the conversation. Um, but if you're a member, you get to ask questions. If you're a member, you get to be here live. If you're a member, you get the notices. Um, it doesn't just show up you know, after the fact in your podcast feed or whatever. So if you want to help us grow this movement, you want to help us reach more people, you want to help us do more of these, or if you just like, I would like to be the one asking the questions during the Ask Me Anything. Yeah. Go and, go and become a member. It's really a light lift, but it means so much. It, it's really impactful to what we're doing. So thank well, you. Thank you all. And yeah. thanks to all of our members. I mean. You rule. <laughs> You're so great. <laughs> yeah, awesome. This, this is, I mean, I've got Alex's letter here. We've got a whole bunch of other, you know, people that have sent us stuff this week that I just got getting in the office. I'm now uh, done with travel. I've done travel every week since, since Labor Day. Spoke with literally thousands of people across this, yep. this, this continent. I was in Halifax, Nova Scotia last week. Uh, I was in Texas yesterday. Uh, the week before I was in Akron, Ohio. We've been all over the place. The energy, the enthusiasm with this movement is, is um, it's remarkable. It's hard to even comprehend. This has been a really successful member drive. I think I can say that at this point. Yeah. Um, and so I've been telling people, I said on the podcast today, like this is a wave, like things are really moving here. Come and be part of it. You know, like we, we, this is a fast growing, exciting place to be. Uh, come and be part of it. Come, come in. It, it's, it's, it's growing out of like a niche kind of thing into something far bigger and uh if you've been on the fence for a while like now's the time now's the time get in yes all right well thank you all so much and keep doing what you can to build a strong town there's your finger guns (laughs) take Take care taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich it's also a necessity to go bankrupt Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story.
because they know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.